I'm just going to come out and confess that I'm tripping a bit right now. And I don't mean the old fashioned way. I didn't take any hallucinogens before the podcast, though. That'd be quite an experiment. I'm not sure I would release that one if I did. But, but no, I'm tripping because I had COVID last week. And because of that, I didn't get to go on this trip with Heather and Sasha to London and then on to uh, Croatia. And it's pretty sick, the place that they're staying. I just got the uh, video, which maybe I'll add into the notes of the podcast. And I'm a bit jealous. But as a result, I've pretty much gotten over COVID. I went to the track today, ran a mile. And I've been here by myself for now it's been about 72 hours. You know, I had COVID for some of it. So I wasn't really leaving the house. And I hadn't been leaving the house even when they were here for a few days very much. And so I've been kind of shut in with my own brain and my own interests. And I'm just kind of tripping after three days. And, and even Oscar is gone. Oscar is at the dog sitter, which I, we, when I was planning to go on the trip before I got COVID, we planned to have Oscar stay at the dog sitter. And I thought, well, if I'm stuck here, I may as well keep me at the dog sitter so I can sleep in in the morning. And I've been sleeping a lot. And that's just added to the surrealness of it. Just, there's no schedule. I don't have a job. I mean, I've, I've been away from the family for a few days before. I used to be single you know, before I had a family. I've lived by myself. But A, there's no dog now. B, I'm used to having a family. And C, when I was single, I had a job. You know, I actually had duties. I had an XM show, although most of the XM show was during when I've had the family. But now I don't even have a job. I don't have a job. I don't have a family. I'm in a foreign country. I was sick. I didn't leave the house yesterday. I left it today, as I said, to go to the track. And I'm starting to trip. I'm starting to get a bit in my head about stuff. And not in a bad way. It's been a very creative period. I've written drafts of like five new things. Some of them, one of them I think is going to be somewhat controversial. And I'm still working on it. And I'm going to talk about a couple other ones. But it's been pretty illuminating. And I feel like, well, I'll say one thing first. I, I've had this fantasy for a long time. I mean, I, for, I don't know, 20 years before I even had a family of having a family. And my family's off at, say, like the in-laws house or somewhere safe, somewhere I'm not worried about them. And that's a way anyway that I couldn't reach them easily. And they're away. And I've closed a big deal at work or sold the company in this case. So financially, there's no immediate worry for me. So I'm not worried about money. I'm not, I'm not a single person worried about meeting girls. I'm not worried about my family around. I'm just completely free of any sort of obligation or attachment at the moment. And in the fantasy, I would have my friends come over to my beach house, which I don't have, but my friends would come to my beach house and we'd take a whole bunch of LSD and we'd have, you know, a music studio set up to jam. We'd have a swimming pool. We'd have a beach. We'd have places to go and walk in nature. We would have great food, bowls of fresh fruit, whatever, weed, cigars, you name it, alcohol. And we'd have the whole weekend or three or four days to just let our minds go wherever they went without any obligation whatsoever. That was a fantasy I had 
which was to sort of escape from the normal process of trying to get things done, having to take care of something, having obligations, having somebody who needs something from you, needing to be reachable, and just letting your mind go. Now, of course, the way I had envisioned it, there's some hallucinogens and a bunch of my friends around, uh, whatever chemicals we needed, and some things like guitars and you know, maybe a Frisbee or something in the beach. But I'm doing a version of that now, these last few days, but the tools are my, my laptop or my desktop and my microphone and my guitar and my video camera. I'm doing a version of that. I'm tripping. I'm, my brain is going where it goes. There's nothing to rein it in. There's nowhere I need to be. I went to the track today. I walked there. It was, I don't know how far, a couple of miles. Then I ran and I was kind of a little thinking I was going to feel like shit because I just came off of COVID, but I actually felt pretty good. I felt shit on the track. Didn't push myself that hard. But by the time I was walking home, I felt great. But that just made it even more trippy. What else is making it trippy? The fact that I'm fasting today. I fast on Mondays. I haven't eaten. It's 642 in the evening right now. And I haven't eaten since Sunday night. And so that's another thing, just adding another layer of untetheredness to the experience. And I'm watching this Apple show. It's, it's Apple Plus show. It's called Severance. It's okay. I've been watching that at night, but it's also a very trippy show. About six episodes in. I'm going to stay with it. It's, it's got my attention. I've been taking notes in my notebook, idea after idea, and I've been scribbling down versions of them on Substack. And I had the idea today and I recorded the first video. You can see it on the chrysalis.com video section to do a video log of the state of things. I don't know if I'll do it every day, every week, periodically, but just to check in for a couple of minutes and talk about what's going on, just literally what's going on in the world in my local area. Are things normal? Are people going out of their houses into shops? Is everything still normal in this period? And it's totally normal right now. And okay, that's on May 30th. It was normal. What's it going to be on June 5th, on June 12th? We'll see. Maybe it'll be normal. Maybe it'll be banal. But I had the idea to do a video log. So I'm doing it. It's an experiment. Like pretty much everything else I'm doing is just an experiment. Everything. It's interesting to just treat your, your life in some ways and your creative life as an experiment. You put things out there, you explore ideas, and you see. It's funny. I'm not making much money off of this. Uh, I do appreciate the contributions people have given me. But as much as I would like to make money, I realize this. I'm pretty sure this is the truth. It could change. I would rather make no money and experiment and do the thing that interests me than do something for money. It's going to be a conflict next fall when I could do some football stuff. And I think some people would pay for football stuff and I'm not sure I'm going to do it. I'm not saying no yet. I'm just not sure. I'm not sure it's worth it. I'm just not sure it's worth it. You know, sometimes even the prospect of doing the podcast, which is what, which is just me talking about what's on my mind. Sometimes I don't even want to do that. Anyway, it's been pretty surreal, just tripping. I mean, there's a long hallway in my apartment. I walk up and down that hallway. 
I get something to eat. Not today. I didn't get a cup of coffee, do something, do the dishes, come back. It's just this weird netherworld that I'm in. And it's funny because in your mind, you can get depressed. You can say, I'm just, you know, what's, what am I doing? What's the meaning? And I noticed today I was walking home from the track and I felt great. And I noticed that thought coming in and I started to think falling into despair is itself a trick. Don't be tricked into despairing thoughts. That's just a trick of the mind that somehow this trip is dull, cumbersome, depressing, boring. That's a trick of the mind. It's anything but. It's creative. And that can be a trick when you try to say, oh, it's creative. I need to get some stuff posted. I need to get some stuff recorded. That's a trick. I don't need to do shit. I don't need to do shit. It's just a trick of the mind. You do stuff without doing it. There's a uh, Zen Buddhist saying, the master gets nothing done and yet leaves nothing left undone. Meaning he's not doing stuff. You're not doing stuff. You're not getting anything done, yet everything gets done. It's not left undone. There's no need to do stuff. Just stay with it. Saw another thing. I retweeted it. This guy, Jim O'Shaughnessy, has some good sort of wisdom quote type tweets. Normally, I don't like that stuff, but I find myself bookmarking a lot of his particular tweets and going back to them. And it's one from a guy, and I forget the guy's name. I should probably just look it up since it's on my Twitter. Talking about how change actually happens. And I think it's correct. It's, it's called How Change Happens. And it's this guy, Seth, I don't know, Seth something. Seth's blog. Seth's dot blog. And it says slowly than all at once. Now, it seems all at once to people who are not paying attention, but things that change, change slowly. You tell one person about Bitcoin. You tell one person about ditching the seed oils. You speak out and one person hears you about COVID and they speak out to one other person. And pretty soon, a few months later, that's just what the truth is. That's just what everybody realizes is the truth. It's not going to come from one big thing often. It's just slowly but surely. And I feel that about this work I'm doing. Work, I don't know if it's work. Whatever the hell this experiment that I'm doing. I like calling it an experiment. That feels more uh, less oppressive. This experiment that I'm doing, it's, it's just going to be gradual. I don't know where it's going. So for now, that's where it is. And I'm tripping. And this is a kind of a version of a fantasy I had. And I also feel it's a glimpse of the future. You know, we're trying to build these houses here in Portugal. And I can already tell Heather is going to want the city life more than I will. I, I like the city life now and then. I like restaurants and socializing. And I plan to have people out at the houses. But I think there'll be times where I'm out there by myself. And I think Sasha, uh, she'll be 12. You know, she's 10 now. But by the time it's done, she'll be 12. I mean, assuming the, the world doesn't fall apart before then. But assuming it goes to plan... She'll probably want to be in the city with her friends, although we'll have her and her friends out there. And I think a lot of times it'll be me out there making stuff, jumping in the pool, sitting in the sauna, fasting. I, I pickled some cabbages today. I'm going to do that out there. I'll be growing things and just experimenting. I think there's going to be times where I'm out there by myself and that's okay. And it, I, I'm very you know attached to my family and I attached to Sasha and but I see her in Croatia jumping in the pool and swimming in the Mediterranean and I'm happy she's there. And, 
And it's more important that she's there than I am. I mean, I would like to be there. Don't get me wrong. Looks really nice. But I just do think that's just a, a glimpse of the future that I'm going to have some time. Sort of this fantasy that I had. I, again, I don't know how often I'm actually going to be taking hallucinogens, but I don't think I need them at this point. That's the point. Enough time of just being with your emotions and feelings and thoughts. Maybe you don't need, maybe you don't need it. That was the lesson I learned from the ecstasy experience I had where I realized I could never get to where I needed to be with some sort of chemical that we're off. So maybe that's this phase right now. Anyway, that's that. There's a couple other things, two things I, I want to talk about that I'm working on. Sort of wanted to talk about the second amendment too and the school shootings, but maybe I'll get to that at the end. I'll see if I leave that in. The other thing I wrote a piece, brief one last week about how people collectively lose their minds. And it was based on this video I saw um, and it's linked obviously in the piece. The piece is called Which Way? It's on chrislist.com. It's also on my Substack. And the title of the video is, is A Mass Psychosis, The Greatest Threat to Humanity. And the vid video is, is interesting. It's watching the whole thing. But there was one passage in particular that struck me. And it was basically alleged that in times of overwhelming anxiety, which I would say the sort of COVID era has been for a lot of people, there's essentially two paths a person can take. One is positive and one is negative. And the negative one is a descent into psychosis. But it's not the psychosis you might think of. Normally, when you think of someone having a psychotic break or having a manic episode, they're running down the street naked and the police stop them and you know bring them in and then they get the medication or whatever. But this is not that. This is it's a psychotic break, but it results in a vast oversimplification of your views. So sometimes I, I see this, at least what I think is this on Twitter, where I'll be talking about something hopefully with some nuance and someone will say, that's a conspiracy theory. That's a, consp that's obviously a conspiracy theory. And I think everything that doesn't comport with the narrative that this person needs to believe is a conspiracy theory. Like literally it could be anything. You could say, well, you know, the Biden laptop, that's actually real. Or, or it turns out that Russiagate was based on a total fraud. Well, that's a conspiracy theory. Anything that doesn't comport with what this person's priors are, after they've shrunk them down to a very ner necessarily narrow funnel in order to survive the extreme anxiety that they're feeling is a conspiracy theory, is disinformation. And I think there's a sort of an industry now, the media and even some politicians in certain locales that are basically just catering to this mass psychosis that, that is just, people have gone crazy. They haven't, they weren't able to handle the PSYOP, this supposedly deadly disease and people being locked down and these repeated vaccinations and, and mandating them and the division between the super spreaders and the, the unvaccinated. And it's a pandemic, you know, it's division and the hate, you know, the George Floyd riots and, and all this going on. And then the one six psyop domestic terrorism and disinformation pandemic. And, and, and I think people have just gone crazy, a lot of them, and, they, and they've done it by normalizing their restricting their worldview to such a simplistic narrative. And there's no amount of evidence that could overturn it. That's the psychosis that it's not, it's not based on evidence or argument or logic, but there is a silver lining in this, which is that that's only one of the two ways somebody can adapt to great anxiety and stress. And the other one is sort of an adaptive response 
to selective pressure and the anxiety and stress are so overwhelming. And I feel like I'm stuck in this that in order to remain connected to reality without freaking out, without being anxious all the time, without losing sleep as I was, you have to integrate the anxiety. You have to experience it. You have to be able to, as Kapil Gupta says, live within the storm. And I'm trying to do that. And I, I feel better subjectively. I don't know that I'm, you know, maybe I don't know it, but I've actually just gone into a psychosis and everyone else outside is like, no, dude, you have like three views and and you, there's no evidence that could dissuade you and could be, right? We wouldn't know it if we were in that state. But I feel like I'm able to feel the anxiety that's inside my system all the time. And I'm sleeping better. I've been sleeping late with no Oscar and no Sasha here. I've been sleeping till 930 and just getting up when I get up. And I feel the anxiety. I feel stressed. I am very concerned about the direction in which the world is going. And yet I feel like I have no choice now. I can't stay. Nobody can stay in a state of extreme anxiety. It's not tolerable. Nobody can, can stomach it. It's too much. So you have no choice but to evolve. And that may sound harsh, but, you know, I wrote about this, that, you know, nature may seem cruel when and the lion kills a, a gazelle and rips it apart. But this selective pressure is how evolution happens. And it's how our brains got to be the size that they are. And intelligent life exists because of this selective pressure. So the greater the stress, the more selective pressure there is. And you have two choices, become insane. And I know I can see some of you have uh, opted for that or become enlightened. And this middle ground where we're sort of half insane, half enlightened that we've all kind of trod on, kind of rested in is being yanked out. You can't sit in the middle ground because it's too anxiety provoking. So you have to be enlightened. You have to be, being enlightened, in my opinion, is just being able to handle the doubt, the uncertainty of what's going to happen to you and your family and the world and the stress that brings and just be in it without letting it drive you crazy. Just absorb it. Just welcome the anxiety. Welcome that feeling of overwhelming anxiety and uncertainty and just being there with the uncertainty and feeling what it feels like and examining its contours and not running from it. So I wrote that. That was one that's actually posted. The other one that I'm working on, this is not the controversial one. This is a very ambitious one that I don't know if I can pull off. Uh, I've talked before about the large numbers that I'm into, and I've talked about Graham's number, and I've talked about Tree 3. And Tree 3 is just such an incredible number. And, I, and I was, I've been so obsessed about this and just thinking about it, and especially with this time to myself, just like thinking about Tree 3 and thinking about how big these big numbers are, how big a Googleplex is when you really think about how big a Googleplex is, the one with Google zeros, you could write a trillion zeros on every atom in the universe and you still couldn't write out the number in the digits of a Googleplex. You just couldn't write it out. Even if you wrote a trillion zeros per atom in the universe, it wouldn't fit in the universe. That's just a Googleplex. But tree three, Graham's number is so much bigger than a Googleplex. It's not, you can't even... They're not even in the same, it's not even the same language you're speaking. And then tree three is so much bigger than Graham's number that you can't even wrap your mind around how much bigger it is. And so I'm writing about this and I can actually write in a way, and I hope people read it when it's done. I know a lot of people, it's not their cup of tea, but, but I'm going somewhere with this. It's not just, oh, cool, look at the big numbers. This is something big. I'm realizing what is my obsession with this? Why can't I shake this? Why am I driving myself almost insane 
thinking about these numbers all the time. What is my point? And I think I found kind of the point, which is that tree three is kind of a miracle. It's a miracle of sorts. It's a miracle of nature. And I'm starting to realize the enormity of what this means. And I'll give you the example that Graham's number is so big and you can get to Graham's number through sort of an iterative process of addition and iterated addition is multiplication and iterated multiplication is exponentiation and iterated exponentiation is tetration and so on and so on. And you can go up the ladder many, many steps to build Graham's number. And it's a number that's so unfathomably big to anybody who thinks like a Googleplex is a big number or a Googleplex to the Googleplex to the Googleplex power is a big number. Those are nothing compared to Graham's number. Not even, there's zero compared to it. And you can go up the steps to get to Graham's number. But the thing about Graham's number is it's so huge, but yet it's just generated by human iteration. It's generated by going one step plus one step plus one step and repeating what you're doing. And in a way, it's kind of the way that artificial intelligence works. It's kind of the way that a machine would do it. It just iterates the process. If you want to make, you know, if you want a machine that makes things and you make them one at a time, that's like counting. And then you can make machines that are add, that you can make machines that can make something three at a time. It's like counting by threes. And then you can make a machine that makes machines that make things three at a time. And it's multiplying. And then you can make machines that make machines that make machines. And then you're, you're doing exponentiation. But eat, this is a, a mechanistic way of building a big number. To get to Graham's number, you're building this thing mechanistically. You're building it with iterations, with making more. You're just saying, make another one of these things that makes these things. You're just taking it to one more level deep. Okay, that's Graham's number. That's the way machines work. But tree three is just a game. It's a game with these dots and these sticks. The dots and sticks together make trees. And it's got a couple of simple rules. And... If you have one color of dot, say red dot and a red stick, and the rule is you, how many trees can you make with that that aren't duplicative? And the answer is one. So tree of one is one. Okay, you've got two kinds of, of, of dots, a red and a green sticks. How many trees can you make that don't duplicate the tree? Three. Tree of two is three. Okay, it's very basic, this game. It's a game of sticks and dots. It's uh, based on Kruskal's tree theorem. But what if you have three dots? You have a red, a green, and a black dot. How many, how many unique trees can you make out of that? Well, it turns out the number, it's tree three, is so vast, it is bigger. It's not just bigger than Graham's number. Graham's number is zero. And there's videos that I link in this piece, it's not done yet, that explain how big this is. But you cannot even understand how big it is. You can barely understand how big Graham's number is. But the, the beauty of this the reason why this is occupying my mind, I realized, is that the insanely hard to build up, insanely many steps, Graham's number that you build with a machine-like construction of iteration, of just repeat, like a computer, you tell it to repeat this thing over and over, cannot even come close, cannot even come close in the history of the universe of doing this to what tree three is, which is just a game with a couple simple rules. Tree three then is the essence of complexity. A complex system, you have a couple of rules and you let nature take its course. A couple of things you don't really know. If you change the input a little bit, the output could be vastly different. A complex system is not linear. It's not predictable. It's not predictable if the Buccaneers lose their left tackle 
whether that's going to end their season or be no big deal. In a complex system, when you move a piece, you don't know what the result for the whole is. You just don't know. It's not linear. It's not predictable on a one-to-one basis. And to me, I think sort of the the human potential, the the way the brain is, the way your, your whole existence is, is we're taught to mechanistically build up, to practice, to train, to do things iteratively. And actually, we are a complex system and a couple of rules, a couple of beneficial conditions for you or for your kids. And the possibility is tree three, is, is absolutely unfathomably bigger and more greatness than you could get from a program, a plan, uh, a prescription. Kapil Gupta is always saying that he doesn't give prescriptions because they're worthless. You're never going to get anywhere from a prescription. Do this. Take these three steps. Do this life hack. And I realized that that is Graham's number. It can do something. You could get good at something by repeating it over and over. But the true greatness, the explosive growth in a complex system is unpredictable. It's a couple of rules. It's just a couple of conditions at the beginning, a couple of parameters and boom, it can blow up like you cannot believe. And you look at this number, tree three, it goes F of one, you know, tree of one is one, F of two is three. F of three is so off the scale large, it is not explainable for me in this podcast. I try to explain some very crazy shit that's not really explainable and doesn't work. I'm not even going to try. I highly, highly recommend you watch this video that Tony Padilla does that I will link in the article that goes through just how big tree three is and how much bigger it is than Graham's number and how big Graham's number is. Graham's number is just unfathomably big. And I do think that, I know this is going to sound a little bit crazy, that our fates are sort of tied, our, the fate of humanity basically is sort of a battle between the Graham's number process and the tree three process, between the iterative mechanical AI prescriptive process and the create conditions and let it go. Let the market tell you, let your own intelligence figure out how to adapt, given enough, given a little bit of food, enough water, a safe place to sleep. Okay, what can you do with your life with fewer rules, just the essentials, a couple of things. And in fact, in modern society, it's a lot of what you're not doing, right? Like not watching porn, not spending this time watching porn, which is just depleting your energy and wasting your time. You know, not playing video games all the time, not doing certain things is, is more of the condition building than, than doing things. And I just think that this is sort of the the battle in one's soul in a way between good and evil. I mean, we think of good and evil. We think of evil as Bill Gates, Klaus Schwab, Putin. This is what we think of good and evil, but maybe the evil, the satanic is the mechanical, the, the entropy, the sort of dull physics of it. And the energy, the, the life force the Logos, I'm reading this book, Valis, which I'm reading forever, but it's a slow read, but, but he has this sort of psychotic break. And in it, uh, the main character, Fat, decides that the universe is ruled by sort of an evil or indifferent, crazy, irrational God, the God of entropy. 
And the good God, the the healing God, the loving God comes in in the form of logos, pure information. And this information, the organizing information is the opposite of entropy. It's energy. It's the organizing of energy in more and more refined ways like the human brain. I opened the three, three piece of the Terrace McKenna quote. It says, there is so far as we know, nothing more advanced than what is sitting behind your eyes. The human neocortex is the most densely ramified, complexified structure in the known universe. Your brain is not going to be defeated by AI, I realize, from tree three and from that quote. I know with a certainty that AI is not going to defeat you. It can defeat a mechanical person. It can defeat you in a mechanical task, but it is not going to defeat you because your brain is tree three. The iterations ahead of, of any sort of mechanical process that it has as a complex system is so far ahead of the grams number type of AI, no matter how advanced it gets. And AI is not even a grams number now. We're still at low level, low level AI. So I'm, I'm starting to think that, that this is an untruth, that you should fear this, or that this is coming to replace you. Yes, it'll replace you if you do a job that's not suited for a human, that's better suited for a machine. But if you do creative work, you're not going to be replaced. I mean, really creative work. You're not going to be replaced. The human neocortex is just too advanced. It's tree three. It's a miracle. It is a miracle of complexity that cannot be caught up to by mechanical iterative processes. It cannot. And I strongly encourage you, if you like math at all, or just like logic at all, to watch the Tony Padilla video where he explains the different levels of large numbers wherein Graham's number lies and wherein tree three lies and how much vaster that disparity is than you could ever possibly imagine. Anyway, I'm trying to pull it off. I'm not sure I did just now in this explanation, but it's never going to stop me from trying. All right. On the second amendment and gun control, you know, the Second Amendment is in the Constitution, and it's not a penumbra of rights like Roe v. Wade. It doesn't matter which one you think is right. The Constitution is the supreme law of the land. Now, there's ways to amend the Constitution. It's very difficult, but it can be done uh, if you don't agree with it. But whether or not you agree with it, it is the supreme law of the land. And while Roe v. Wade was decided based on a penumbra of rights, it's obviously uh, abortion is not mentioned in the Constitution. The right to bear arms is explicitly mentioned in the Constitution. So as a legal matter, it is on very, very solid ground. Now, as an ethical and moral matter, obviously, a lot of people think it's stupid. It's anachronistic. They shouldn't have done it. They had muskets. They were uh, organizing militias to in case the British invaded, in case some other foreign invader came in. And that is from another time. And a lot of people believe that. I actually think I'll, I'll steel man the Second Amendment argument because I think there's an argument that goes like this against it. The bullshit argument is, oh, we need AR, we need assault rifles to hunt. Nobody uses, I mean, you don't need that to hunt. Um, the assault rifles are for killing people, for killing lots of people, inflicting lots of damage on other humans. Obviously, that's what they are. They're weapons of war. The strong argument and honest argument in, in response is these weapons are necessary to protect us from government tyranny. We need weapons of war to protect us from, to not give a monopoly on violence to the state, to the police, to the military. And then the argument against that goes, oh, yeah, right. You're going to take on the U.S. military or even a, a local police force. You'll be dead. You're not going to survive that. 
There's no point in you having that weapon. They're going to kill you every time. And that is true. But I heard a counter argument that I found quite persuasive, which is that, yeah, you're going to lose. But if you and your family and your friends scattered geographically around the States all have these weapons and the government comes in and pulls a, you know, David Koresh, Branch Stravidians, kills every one of you, which they obviously could do. Those people, if they kill you and murder you in cold blood, have families, have, you know, private lives outside their law enforcement lives. And it is dangerous for them to do that to a tribe of people that are heavily armed and you're not going to kill all of them in this one place. And, you know, you see the Taliban basically kicked our asses in Afghanistan. We didn't handle that properly. Obviously, the U.S. military could bomb the Taliban into a different millennia, but oh, they're sort of in a different millennia already. But, you know, an organized group with just those kind of weapons is extremely, it can be extremely difficult for government level force to deal with when they're dispersed, when they're dispersed uh, over wide geography. And again, you, you can't beat the government, but it just makes the government have a much, much higher cost. And the agents that work for the government know that, you know, there's also cell phone cameras, right? So if, if, if it's on camera that they killed a bunch of people and you're the agent and your face is in there doing that, that video will circulate and other people with guns will know who you are and they'll pretty soon be able to track where you live and who your family is. And it's a massive deterrent in my opinion versus an unarmed population. If they wanted to go in and round you up, prison you or kill you, what are you going to do? Either way, again, you're going to lose but the fact that your friends and family and friends of friends will see the video and know the faces. And, and, and moreover, it's not that this is going to get into some civil war, but that the agents know that that's a risk. They know that they're on camera. They know that their identities can come out. So I, I, I do think there is a, a legitimate anti-tyranny rationale for having weapons. That doesn't mean it's worth the trade-off. You could say still, you know, this is, this is terrible. And, you know, but there is a legitimate purpose for the second amendment. There's a, le there's a legitimate purpose to own deadly weapons. And in my opinion, the, the question is, you know, what's the trade-off? The second argument is, yeah, okay, fine. Maybe in the event that your government turned into that, it would be good to have weapons. Say if you were Ukraine and Putin invaded or something, but that's not happening in the U S and there's no need. And again, I, I would disagree. I would say it's not happening in the U.S. now, but you had this exact administration trying to form a ministry of truth and also ramping up their domestic terrorism efforts. You know, they're, they're seeing people who disagree with them in some ways as, as potential terrorists. And I think the last thing is, I think that the sort of easy compromise I think the last thing is that there's there's sort of an easy compromise, right? Which is like, okay, Second Amendment, it's legitimate, it's law and land, whether people like it or not, but we can ban and reduce assault weapons. So, you know, I think Elon Musk suggested this, you know, why don't we just have a very stringent basis on which these kind of weapons are licensed to people and the vast majority of people are not going to be able to get these weapons easily at all. And that sounds sensible on its face, but if your concern is truly with government tyranny and that you think you need to have these weapons because it's the government that will eventually 
do to you what governments in the past have done to their citizens around the world. I'm not sure how you're going to convince someone who thinks that, that the government then should be deciding who gets to have the weapon of self-defense of choice. So that's, that's a hurdle, right? Because the government would have to itself determine who the uh, people would be who get it. And a lot of people say, well, tough shit. You know, that's, that's just the price you pay there, your government. But the legitimacy of the government after lockdowns and after so many lies, it has to be called into question that, that to give them the monopoly on violence, they wanted a monopoly on truth also. I mean, it's gotten so sick that they wanted a monopoly, not just on violence, which they already basically have. They have a legal monopoly on violence. There's very, there's only very narrow circumstances in which, you know, you can respond with in kind. Um, Self-defense um, is something you have to prove affirmatively. So they have a monopoly on violence, certainly initiating violence. And they wanted a monopoly on, uh, on truth too, on basically free speech. They get to decide what's true. So is it that crazy to think maybe these people shouldn't be deciding whether I can defend myself or not? Maybe it isn't so crazy. And I'll just say, I've never owned a gun in my life. I've never even shot a real gun in my life. I was an anti-gun liberal from New York. But if I lived in the U.S. right now, I might get one and learn how to use it um, for self-defense. I, I just think that times are changing. And, you know, that you saw that the police kind of stood down during the riots last year. You saw that the police did not go in and help those kids in the classroom. If I were in the U.S. living there, I might get one. I'll say one last thing. WHO wanted to have some sort of supranational uh, health treaty that governed all of the countries of the world. The idea that, well, you know, pandemics are not restricted to one country and we need someone with the authority to kind of do it all. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, you're going to have a hard time with the U.S. Constitution. And a lot of these people who want to take over the Ministry of Truth and even the gun control, the U.S. Constitution is a real bitch. The Bill of Rights is a real bitch. And you know what else is a real bitch? Federalism. You have Florida making different COVID rules and Florida fared better than California. And uh-oh, you can't just say what's true and make it up because you have state in Florida that has done it differently and they don't have the authority to intervene there. And the founding fathers, uh, this is a long time ago, they were no slouches. They were not stupid. They knew what they knew from people. They knew from human nature. And this is just so interesting that they built this document and this structure that is now under serious assault, right? There's a lot of people that want to take away rights. They want to take away sovereignty. They want to have a supranational health organization tell you what has to happen during pandemics. And, and they're running into some trouble with the U.S. Constitution. This is a document that's more than 200 years old. And what a beautiful thing that these very wise people who had been through, who took on the most powerful military in the world and defeated it and understood tyranny and understood human nature. And they uh, bequeath this to us. I'll end on that note. I don't know how much of this uh, gun control stuff I'm going to leave in here. I know it's very sensitive and uh, a lot of emotions around it, but just some thoughts I had. Anyway, I'll just end on that note. That's it. Till next time.